Hello, welcome to Arts Report. Uh, you are listening to CITR 101.9 FM. Today is September 21st, and we're broadcasting live from the University of British Columbia uh, on the unceded and stolen Musqueam territory. My name's Ruby Wa- Raven. Almost messed up my name. Welcome to the show. Um, so we are starting off the show today with, uh, with today's a VIF episode. So everything is about the Vancouver International Film Festival, which we're really excited about partnering with. Uh, our first guests are here live uh, via Zoom, so kind of half live. Uh, Haley Gray and Elad uh, Sadok. Yes. So there's been a bit of a problem with the aux, so we're going to be hearing them through a mic from my computer. Uh, <laughs> so I hope that this turns out... All right, I think it will. Uh, do you guys want to maybe do a little one, two, three test? Yeah, absolutely. Hello, what you have for breakfast, Taylor? Scramble eggs. <laughs> oh man, sorry guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm gonna try one more time to figure out the ox. So just bear with me one second. Where is? Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, can you speak? Hello, hello. Three, two, one. Let's make radio. Okay, I think I think we made it work. We made it work. <laughs> Woo! This is a triumph for me. You may be surprised to hear this, but I'm not the best with tech. Okay, so let's get into the intro. Like I said, today's the VIF episode. So we're starting off with a Zoom interview from Haley Gray and Elad Sadok. Then we're going to jump into a pre-recorded interview with Alan Franny, who is the VIF Director of International Programming. I'll talk about uh, a film that I saw this morning called Bones of Crow. Uh, Bones of Crows, which is an incredible film. It was a part of a VIF press screening that I was lucky enough to go to, and I was... (laughs) Oh, dog. That's our dog. dog in the background. I was sobbing. I literally took me an hour after the film ended to, like, come to. So I'm really excited to talk about that. But for right now, we are here with Haley and Elad. Thank you so much for joining me and bearing with the uh, technical difficulties. No worries. Thanks for having us. And I apologize. Our dog has a lot of opinions about uh, stolen and erased history, and he will get into them later. (laughs) Oh, I cannot wait to hear his opinions on it. (laughs) 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 So Haley and Elad, uh, your film, your documentary film, Unarchived, is your first feature-length documentary with the National Film Board of Canada. So congratulations about that. Mazel tov. Very exciting. Thank you, Thank you. so much. <laughs> we appreciate that. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. We started yeah. this process four years ago, and between COVID and everything else going on, it feels kind of crazy to finally have a whole movie that people get to watch. Yeah, it's that it's 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 a really big deal. So congratulations. Um, so the film follows four underrepresented communities in British Columbia that have documented, shared, and celebrated their own history and experiences outside of traditional archives and museums. Uh, so it has a youthful point of view and a fast-paced style. It's not your grandmother's documentary. <laughs> that is what I was sent in the press. So I thought I would. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. No, we definitely, I, I feel like I've found many, I, I've fallen asleep to many very slow documentaries in my time. And a lot's a little bit more methodical than me, but we definitely wanted this to feel fast paced and engaging throughout the whole film so that was a big push and we've got a, a phenomenal graphics um team or i guess graphic designer who worked with us to like add a lot of that i think i think one of the big things that we took away making this film was that archives are never really about the past they're about the future mm-hmm. and with that in mind we wanted a film that would represent that yeah that that's amazing um so I can't help but notice that you're wearing t-shirts that say museums are not neutral. Neutral. So I yeah. want to ask you about those, um, but I feel like it might make more, more sense after you explain your film a little bit. So can you, in your own words, explain what your documentary is about? Oh, that's so funny. I was going to pass it to you first. <laughs> um, go for it. All right. Um, in a nutshell, our 
film is looking at, like you said, four communities across British Columbia that have been focusing on documenting their own history and trying to correct the historical narrative of the dominant historical narrative that's been kind of portrayed in British Columbia and in Canada. Uh, and in doing so, we're examining historical erasure in systemic kind of pasts uh, and looking at the work that people are doing to fix that. Yeah, I'd say when we first started this film, we felt like a lot of people didn't know what historical erasure meant. I feel like I, uh, before our, our first film on, on BC's hidden histories, didn't really understand the gravity of what it meant to have your history erased. And through this process, it's been an interesting journey because I feel like we're seeing more and more community archives, um, racialized archives, queer archives popping, like um, coming to fruition, which is really, really exciting. And I feel like it, there's more of an understanding of how much has been left out of the historical record. And starting at the spotlight that they so desperately deserve, mm -hmm. which I think has been something that's been a challenge for a long time. And sometimes even the financing. Yeah. <laughs> even the financing? Did you say? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just so hard. Like, it takes so much work to maintain a large museum and institution. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's exciting to see these people who have been, you know, working as often as volunteers or definitely giving in way more hours than they should finally getting the, the funding to do the digitization and to build the, the archives that, and museums that they've been wanting to build for such a long time. So in your documentary, do you document these archives being put in some sort of museum or archive, or are you, is the film more? Yeah, we did a poor job of explaining this. <laughs> so, I can yeah, feel the, the passion behind it. There was definitely, it was a passionate answer. I just want to make sure I'm super clear. <laughs> Absolutely. So in the film, we follow four um, cultural institutions, uh, some one of which has started in the 70s, one of which just started last year and look at how different um, marginalized communities have started building um, or have previously built these archives. Some of them live within other bigger institutions and some of them stand on their own. So for instance, the uh, BC Gay and Lesbian Archive uh, made a transition to be part of the larger Vancouver City Archives. And that was a big piece of after you know, 48 years, 45, over 40 years of, of documentation. Uh, whereas the Caltan Archive is building its own archive and its own space on its own territory, or the Chinese just starting off. Yeah. And it's just starting off, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so it's kind of a mix. Some of these spaces live within larger institutions, and others uh, deliberately live outside of them. And so, if these communities didn't have a place to put their archives, um, like such as a, a museum. How did these archives stick around and how do we have access to them now to, to now give them the space that they deserve? Because of very <laughs> diligent passionate, historians. And passionate people. I think yeah. what ends up happening a lot of times is that somebody somewhere along the way realizes that they need to become the steward of their community's history and their community's mm -hmm. story and take it upon themselves to start collecting these pieces and to start putting together what ends up becoming an archive. And often it's it's not an archive per se, it's, it's a scrapbook, it's photos, it's a bunch of little things that were bequeathed to them. Um, yeah, the BC Gay and Lesbian Archives essentially started out of somebody's uh, bedroom and under his bed and in his wow. closet. That's oh, where it lived for a very long time. That's amazing. And quickly took over his entire apartment and his entire <laughs> life. <laughs> so how did you choose which underrepresented communities you were going to feature in the documentary? Uh, so we had started, we weren't even sure it was going to be just one documentary. Mm -hmm. When we first went to the NFB, we were like, we've got ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Probably too many. Uh, and we had about 20 stories that we were 20 different to. stories across the province, looking at a whole bunch of different communities and trying to look at it, the whole thing from a different, from multiple different angles. Uh, and slowly started narrowing it down to four that really had something to contribute to the conversation that we were trying to have. And we're in a place where they wanted to have that conversation mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a... In a larger, larger capacity, capacity and felt safe sharing it. Mm. Wow. 
And so how did you go about finding these people? That's a great question. How did we start? So we volunteered with um, a nonprofit called Populous Map that uh, works to digitize and make accessible um, underrepresented archives. And that was a, a somewhere between like a ghost town tour and uh, a museum research uh, life that we led, led, for, led for a while. Oh my gosh. Uh, and then that led us to our first document documentary Hayashi Studio, which is about the um, the Japanese Canadian photography studio on Vancouver Island in Cumberland that kind of shows you how diverse Vancouver Island was and still is to a certain degree. Um, that was kind of the big opening moment, I think, for both of us, where we were able to see just see history that was literally erased. Um, and then working with, with uh, uh, oh my gosh, working with <laughs> populist map we ended up finding more and more of these stories until we and then from there you meet other people who meet other people who have other recommendations so it kind of once you get into those communities it's easy to hear everyone's got a lot of stories that they want to share yeah and really rich stories so now that i have this understanding thank you so much you've done such an amazing job of explaining it can you please explain your shirts museums are not neutral absolutely yeah so there's a foundation out of portland uh it's a non-profit foundation that is again looking to correct historical erasure and looking to correct what is actually happening in museums and archives across north america and across the world where when you look at these institutions you start digging into it and you realize that the narrative that they're portraying is singular. It doesn't take everybody's stories and histories into account. It takes primarily in North America a white settler narrative, primarily male, primarily straight. Uh, While um, astounding that they are objective and being inclusive and having a full understanding of the terrain. So there's a false narrative that's being portrayed there and one that I think the, the industry and the institutions are slowly trying to correct and course correct. Uh, very slowly. And very, very slowly. As institutions tend to, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the fundamental flaw of it all. Um, and I think this is really about calling attention to that and making people, helping people understand and see what changes need to happen and how we need to start re-examining not just our own history, but how we view the past. Absolutely. White settler museums are not neutral. They took things from people that they, those people would like back. They wrote histories that were not collective or inclusive or from many various points of view. They continue to erase a lot of people who have been in places like British Columbia for a really long time. And I, I can tell that this is something that you guys feel very personally. So beyond being the directors of this film, how do you feel like this project is really personal? I say for me, you know, I grew up in Ontario, not in BC, but I think I am always running the thought experiment in my head of like, if I knew these histories, if I had an inclusive history growing up as a kid, how would I better understand the world and Canada? And like, why is it that I get, I didn't have access to and understand so many of these stories. And if I did, if my, you know, if my school did, if my, the kids that I went to school with and then on a larger capacity, my generations did, what would our understanding of history in the world look like? Hmm. I think for me, there's a narrative of otherness that gets, Put upon people who are not primarily white, not necessarily from here, who are immigrants, who might be, you know what, I'm I'm first generation in Canada, but I'm also second generation, also third generation. Like my grandparents moved here three generations ago, but my mother moved away and I moved back. And it becomes this very intricate conversation of what does it mean to be Canadian and what sort of sense of ownership do I have over that identity in that space uh, and it, it became a very kind of deep dive for me into that 
And what do you think your documentary says about what it means to be Canadian? It's a good question. I think it says that we're uh, Canadian is a is a concept that's ever evolving. I think it says that we need to stop and examine the narrative that we've been telling ourselves for 150 years and start to fundamentally think about that in a different light. Yeah, I think it definitely says that like um, settlers were always included racialized communities and that we continue to frame racialized communities as first generation in Canada when realistically the Chinese community has been here since the late 1700s. The, the South Asian community and, and many Asian communities really built British Columbia and are not acknowledged the way that they need to be in our, in our spaces and in our museums and in our archives. Yeah. And, and what do you hope that audiences take away from your film? I think on like a help, a, a, a sweet personal level, I hope everyone wants to go talk to their grandma and like digitize <laughs> all of their family photos because everybody's history is important. Yes. <laughs> I think that's exactly it. Everyone's history is important. Mm -hmm. And every every little piece like your grandmother's stories the little the boxes full of photos and family photos that are sat that are sat tucked away in the garage somewhere they're important and they mean something not just to you and to your family but they serve a greater purpose in terms of conveying the narrative of who was here before us and what what's to come absolutely and I think, I can't remember if says this in the film or outside, but uh, every generation makes their own history. And I hope this really kind of inspires the next generation to, to really be thinking about history as something that they're actively participating in. No, I, I really appreciate that because I know my family history, I'm lucky enough to know my family history and um, discuss it at length with my family. And it does feel really big and really important to me and like a really big part of my life. So over the course of this film, did you guys do that? Did you go to your parents and your grandparents and ask them about your histories? Like, did it inspire you to do that in your own families? Yeah, we went home uh, last year and interviewed yeah. my grandmother with our new camera. So that was fun. <laughs> a lot of parents are already big history nerds. Yeah. Um, interviewing Yemenite Jews everywhere. <laughs> but it's definitely for me, I think, made me realize how important it is to collect these stories now while mm -hmm. I still can. Absolutely. And to interview my parents, interview... We literally have a tub of your grandmother's stuff in the corner <laughs> over there that you're planning to scan and then yeah. uh, donate to the Jewish Museum. Uh, so yes, <laughs> yes, we're in the process yeah. right now. Absolutely. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I could literally talk to you guys for so long, <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for, for the time you gave me. Uh, you can see Unarchived as a part of the Vancouver International Film Festival on Friday, September 30th at the SFU Woodward's Theatre at 6.15 or Sunday, October 2nd at International Village at 12 p.m. Thank you so much. It was so lovely to talk to you. I hope everyone goes and sees Unarchived. Thank, thank you. you so Thanks much. so much for having us. <laughs> Bye. Um, Bye. All right. That was Haley Gray and Ilad Sadok. Oh, my God. They were so wonderful. They were great. Weren't they great talkers? I just love a great talker. <laughs> All right. So we're going to jump into some ads, some PSAs, and a song. And when we come back, Nate, a new arts report contributor, will be joining us. So let's get into it. Here's an ad that I made for some coffee that you should consider buying. Do you love being caffeinated? And do you hate that greedy, soulless international conglomerates are succeeding in the cutthroat world of coffee? Sounds like local coffee roasters, Trek Coffee is for you. Hey. Trek Coffee is 100% indigenous and military veteran owned and operated. Uh, Let's keep small businesses thriving. Stop by Sunshine Convenience on 4th, the Super Value on Commercial, or Grocery Checkout in the Nest to pick up some Trek Coffee today. Hey. 
Hi there. You're listening to CADR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from UBC Vancouver campus located on the unceded ancestral and traditional lands of the Hunkamenim-speaking Musqueam people. We honor the ancestral and ongoing care for this land by the host nations. Media practices are often rooted in white gaze, and we recognize that it is our responsibility to shift our approach and move towards radical empathy. While we broadcast from UBC Vancouver campus, our listenership extends to the unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations and beyond. We encourage you to check out native-land.ca, that is native-land.ca, to learn more about whose land and territory you live and work on or may be visiting. Thank you. here with Nate. Oh, Nate. Hi, guys. You can... Yeah, that's good. Like this? A little farther back from the mic. Oh, okay. This is Nate's first time on the Arts Report. Oh, the mic is doing its thing. i just hold it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is Nate's first time on the Arts Report. Very exciting. <laughs> uh, he's considering becoming a correspondent. I am. Yes. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> so the song you just heard is called Here For You To Love by Madison Violet on their album 11. Uh, and for those of you who are joining us after the break, the interview you just heard was with Haley Gray and Ilad Sadok, uh, who are the directors of the documentary Unarchived. Go see it on September 30th 
uh, at the SFU Woodward's Theater or on October 2nd at International Village. It literally sounds amazing. I can't wait to see it. All right. Now what we're going to do is we're going to launch into yet another VIF-related interview. This is the VIF episode. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> and I'm super excited about it. We're going to have a couple VIF episodes because we've partnered with VIF. Uh, we're sponsoring one of the films uh, from Norway called Sick of Myself, directed by Christopher Brogley. Uh, but right now, the interview that you are about to hear is with Allison Franny, who is the director of international film for VIF. So he's the one who goes through all of the international films and, sh- and curates what films are going to be a part of VIF. And he was a really interesting person to talk to because he's been working with VIF for like 30 years as doing different roles. He used to own a theater. Anyways, I'll let you guys listen. But here is Allison Franny. Oh. Hello, Ruby. Oh, there we go. Hi, Alan. <laughs> Hi. Hi, so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Uh, so today I'm joined by Alan Franny, the director of international programming at VIF. Is that correct? International programming? It is. Yes, because you were also VIF's festival director for 26 consecutive festivals from 1988 to 2013, correct? Correct. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me today and talking to me about the festival. I'm really excited about CITR's and Discorder's partnership with VIF. Um, uh, so tell me, uh, what does it mean to be the director of international programming? Like, what does your day-to-day look like? Um, I'm actually not the director of international programming right now. Uh, my that was my title for a few years after being festival director. I'm now simply called uh, international feature film programmer. Mm-hmm. So, um, what does it mean to do that? Well, it's still basically the same job. Uh, what's happened in the last couple of years is that we've shifted around with staff. So Curtis Walshuk has become the director of programming. He's full time. I'm working half time and just focused on programming. So the way we choose films is we travel to several film festivals throughout the year, Cannes being the most important for us uh, because it's just in May and um, has a pretty amazing slate of films every year and Berlin and uh, and then seeing a lot of films uh, online as well. But we also get so many submissions, you know, filmmakers and sales agents send us hundreds and hundreds of films. We got something like 4,000 entries this year when you include short films. Yeah. So it takes a lot of people to view all these, especially because a lot of them come to us fairly recently. You know, we get our deadlines in June and we see an awful lot of stuff in a few months. And so my job is eyeballs on movies and um, and then just selecting the best of them. Do you get to watch them with like a friend or family member and discuss it or is it, is it confidential and you can only do it by yourself? Oh, no, I, I, I often do with my wife, uh, but not always I'm, because when she's at work, then I'm viewing things at home and she also has other interests. <laughs> Now, the good thing is that (laughs) we've got about two dozen people who look at the submissions just for the international feature films, which includes documentaries, but the feature length films, and they either like them or they don't. And so some films that just aren't very good at all, I don't have to see them because they get through that screening process. So I'm only looking at the films that they have already liked. Right, so you're sort of, there's juniors or interns who might watch more and then send them up the totem pole to you? Well, they're not juniors. Um, it's because some of them, for example, one person who's done this for years has been a professor of mathematics at SFU for quite a long time, and he's an expert on Czech films. He's originally from Czech Republic. So he'll be the one who, uh, you know, views all the Czech films. You try to do it like that, so we're comparing uh, apples to apples, so to speak. 
but I'm fortunate that I don't have to just see everything. I'm just looking at the films they recommend. And then of course, we are also requesting films. We're doing research of uh, what's being made and we'll request from filmmakers or sales agents, they send us a link. So we've already got an interest in that filmmaker. Maybe we show quite a few films. We know the filmmaker already. We love their work. We watch very carefully what they do. And um, if they don't contact us, we contact them and we try our best to keep in touch with the, the directors we like. So it's the directors themselves that have relationships that, with the festivals. It's not like their team that you're communicating with. You're communicating with them, the directors. Uh, it's usually the director or the sales agent because directors are busy and then they don't have the time, especially if they're making another film, they don't have the time to deal with all the film festivals in every country of the world. And mm -hmm. there are many film festivals, not all of them as large as Vancouver, but um, yeah, they often have a sales agent. So if a sales agent takes on a film, it's their responsibility to get it into festivals and to sell the film in all the various territories around the world. Mm -hmm. Very complex job when you think about it. There's many, many countries and um, they need to make a sale to each one of them individually. Mm -hmm. Okay, and okay, that's, that's interesting. So I, I didn't think that in some cases there, the directors would be interacting. I mean, it sounds like there's mostly the sales agents, but um, how did you in particular get into this line of work? Well, I always loved cinema. So even when I was in high school, I was seeing subtitled films and founded a film club. And then I pursued it at university. And then one of the first jobs I got was at the Ridge Theater, which isn't there anymore, but it was- Yeah, a, there's a Loblaws there or a city market. I think there's a grocery store there now. Yeah, so I was the manager of the Ridge from 79 till 85, and then um, also programmed and uh, owned with my wife the Vancouver East Cinema at 7th and Commercial for, for many years. Oh, wow. So I've just always been a film person. I also love music and other things, but um, I've been fortunate to work in the field of cinema all my life. That's really cool. And um, how do you recommend that other people, other young people get into the line of work that you're in now, which is working for film festivals? Well, uh, one good way is to volunteer mm -hmm. because a lot of the people we hire have been volunteers for the festival and we get to know them and they're smart and have uh, <laughs> some interest in cinema, then they often get jobs with the festival. The other way is um, just to keep your eye on uh, job opportunities. And then, of course, a lot of people start their own film festivals. I mean, it depends on your taste. If there's something you're particularly interested in that's not uh, well served, uh, you can do these things, even if it starts small. So I used to, you know, feel that I, there was something missing in terms of cinematic representation when I was young and I tried to address that. Of course, it's a more dynamic world now because there's so many options and we can see things online. Um, what do you mean you tried to address it? Like how Well, did you for example, um, I, when I was in high school in the mid seventies, there, there was a whole area of cinema that wasn't well represented like there were political documentaries, for example, that I was interested in seeing and I'd heard something about that I had no way of seeing. So I used to take the bus down to, um, I lived in Burnaby at the time, so I'd take the bus to, um, on Broadway, there was a place called um, Idera, which distributed 16 millimeter prints of political documentaries and I would, use the school 16 millimeter projector and I would project them to friends and fellow students just because I thought they were amazing films. So is that why you, is that what you did at the theater that you owned with your wife? Uh, well, that was bigger. That was a big, you know, that was a business with, with 500 seats and we had a pretty expensive lease. We had to 
I think we have to average about 250 people per screening just to break even. Mm. So it was, um, well, those were good days because <laughs> you know, it was before the internet. So people really did go to theaters a lot. Mm -hmm. So we often had really good crowds and we published a program that people put on their fridge and um, yeah. Cool. And what would you say is an important lesson that you learned as festival director that you didn't know when you started the job? Well, so many. I think that one that relates to everyone though is that uh, to understand, even if you're, like I was, I, when I was young, I perhaps thought that um, my tastes were isolated and um, not well served by what was playing in mainstream commercial cinemas mm -hmm. all the time, although I've always loved many of those films too. But there's a lot of what you might describe as very commercial fodder that didn't necessarily appeal to me much. And what I discovered working with audiences and um, working at theaters and being involved with the film festival is that um, people are intelligent and they have strong feelings about what they see and they love to communicate with each other. They love to share the experience. They love to learn. They love to meet the filmmaker. And film festivals really offer that. And it, it is an encouraging process because you realize how many good, smart people there are around you. And um, so it's, it's not just about each individual film. It's also about the shared experience, um, the yeah, community building and finding your niche, finding people who share your, your values. Wow. That's, that's, that's awesome. Um, uh, I guess I just have one last question for you. And it is, how would you recommend that young Canadian filmmakers get their films into the festival? In, and not just like go to this website, but I mean more like what types of films are you looking for? Well, I think the most important thing to say is that um, it's pretty easy to make a decent film from a technical standpoint these days. You know, a lot of people know how to use um, their smartphone even. The, the limitation is not the equipment necessarily, but just having personal vision, integrity, something meaningful to say, uh, having an original voice, not being too self-indulgent with your own, um, navel gazing, you know, like to, to really have something meaningful to say about the world, trusting that um, if you do good work, that other people will be interested in it. So the, the number one thing is to uh, make a good film and um, nothing replaces that. Um, and then really reaching out and um, testing your vision with other people and making sure that uh, you're not just interesting yourself, but you're interesting um, strangers too, not just friends, but strangers. You have to think about it from the point of view of an audience who doesn't know you personally. Awesome, that, that's great advice. Thank you so much. And, and thank you so much for your time, Alan. I'm so excited to go watch some of the movies that you picked out. Um, have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much. And the other thing is just take some risks, right? Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Take some it's risks. Nice. On the final note to end on, take some risks. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Nice to talk to you. You too. Bye. TransCare BC works to enhance the coordination of trans health services across the province and offer expanded health services to support transgender communities. They are doing this by developing gender-affirming client-centered models of service, ensuring access to gender-affirming and supportive healthcare that is equitable and available, and supporting network development to make sure trans and gender-diverse individuals, their families, and healthcare providers have access to information, resources, and support. Check out phsa.ca to learn more about this program and lend your voice to help create an inclusive and supportive system for trans members of our community.
Arts Report. Arts Report. Arts, Arts Report. report. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Arts Report. My name is Ruby Raven. I'm here with Nate. Nate. My name's Nate Holers. Nate Holers. <laughs> <laughs> he is, this is his first time here on the Arts Report as a correspondent. Super excited to have you. So for those of you who are just joining us on CITR 101.9 FM out of UBC campus on the Arts Report, today is the VIF episode, Vancouver International Film Festival episode. So CITR and Discorder has partnered with VIF as well as the Arts Report and Take One, which is a a film and television review show, and my uh, other show, Not My First Shmodio, which is a comedy show where I write sketches and interview comedians. We have all partnered with VIF, and specifically a film called Sick of Myself, which is uh, a film from Norway directed by Christopher Broglie, Um, and it is playing, oh my god, where is it playing, when is it playing? It's playing as a part of VIF, so go see it, Uh, but right now what I want to talk about is a film that I saw today called Bones of Crows. So I went to a special press screening. I'm very excited about being a part of the press. Uh, <laughs> I'm jealous. <laughs> it's, it's so awesome. Um, but I went to a screening. And Bones of Crow is basically, uh, it's a Canadian film. Uh, Vancouver-born Dene Métis writer-director Mary Clement lays out a hard history of Indigenous resilience in this urgent, harrowing epic spanning most of the 20th century, the story of a Cree woman from childhood through residential schools, World War II, and beyond. So this film is maybe one of the most powerful films that I've ever seen in my whole life. I was sobbing <laughs> for two hours and so incredibly moved. For the after the film ended, I, I stayed in the theater till literally the screen was black after all the credits had rolled. I was still sobbing. I walked outside of the VIF Center to the park across the street, and I sat on a bench, and for 20 minutes I was paralyzed. Like, I literally couldn't – I had to, I had to get, go to the bus. I had to check the time. I had to eat. I literally was just sitting on the bench, like, reeling from what I had just seen. That's the best. And it took me 20 minutes to get up off the bench and walk to go get food because I was like, I need to feed myself after sobbing for two hours. <laughs> Um, but it was a, it was just a really, really powerful film about residential schools. I don't know the, I'm not a huge, uh, Canadian film buff, so I don't actually know the history of Indigenous films or films about residential schools in Canadian film, but I'm going to get to interview Marie Clemen, uh, Mm. next week for the Arts Report, which I'm really excited about. And, uh, I'm thinking I'm going to like prepare very heavily. Not that I don't prepare for all my interviews, but I was so severely moved by it that I I really want to do right by her in this interview and I really want to make sure that that comes across without the intensity (laughs) that I feel like you know I don't want to scare her um but but yeah it was just if there's one film that you see please make it unarchived well which I just interviewed those directors which are amazing (laughs) there's one documentary you see make it unarchived but if there's one film you see make it bones of crows I genuinely think they should show this film in schools I mean it is very intense but it does such a brilliant job of showing generational trauma and in in such a clear way like you it's so clear for for people who have a hard time understanding how something that happened to your grandmother could still be affecting you mm-hmm. it it does such a brilliant job of showing you exactly how it manifests in loving families with people who are hard workers and who are smart and caring and close and and how what generational trauma can do to those families but um truly incredible film please go see it (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was just um it, it feels like residential schools seem to be kind of, like, missing from the, like, cultural, like, canon. Like, there hasn't really been, like, a portrayal of them that's, like, widely known. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like that's kind of important for, like, getting people to um, act on it and care. I totally agree. And that's what I was thinking as I was watching this film. And it was, it was interesting because last summer I was having this conversation with my mom about how um, I'm Jewish. My family's Jewish. 30 years after the Holocaust, she said that there started to be films about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And it took about 30 years 
uh, in the 70s, there was, like, the first, like, Lifetime movie about it. And um, she was saying how she hopes, because it's been about 30 years since the last residential school closed, that the indigenous genocide, the residential schools, that that will follow a similar trajectory in terms of those films starting to become more widely known, more widely talked about, and also, like, recognized in part of the film industry Mm -hmm. um because i do think as a jewish person like schindler's list and all those films were so important to for educating the public on what happened to jewish people during the holocaust and and other people during the holocaust so i really hope that bones of crows and, and other films that i really hope follow it can can have that same wide reaching effect Mm hmm yeah 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 I agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, that's that's a great point. Thank you for bringing that up. So I also wanted to spend this time talking about some films that I haven't had a chance to see yet, but that I want to highlight because they're they're Canadian films. And so these are films that are showing um as part of VIF, which is happening September 29th to October 9th. Shout out. Shout out. <laughs> so we're going to give some shout outs. So the first one is called Rice Boy Sleeps. Uh, and the synopsis is Raising Her Son Dong Hyun. Uh, in Vancouver's suburbs, so young, a South Korean immigrant desperately wants to instill a sense of pride in the boy. Meanwhile, he wants to fit in. So this synopsis doesn't give too much away <laughs> of what's happening. But um, if you're interested in seeing this film, uh, it, the, the filmmaker is from Vancouver. So I will be interviewing Anthony Shim uh, also as well for VIF. So you'll probably hear that next week on our episode. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it's, it's about uh, a Vancouverite who is also a Korean immigrant. So if that sounds like something that interests you about fitting in and family matters and mother and son, mm-hmm. then you can go see that on, wait, where the dates were just here? Oh, September 30th or Monday, October 3rd. So that's the thing with VIF is there's only two showings for most of the films. Mm-hmm. So if you want to see it, it's not like it's going to be in theaters for a long period of time. Make sure that you look it up and that you book the dates in uh, because these could go really fast. I'm sorry, what's the title again? The title, oh, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> it was called Rice Boy Sleeps. Rice Boy Sleeps. Yes, cool. Rice Boy Sleeps. Um, another one is called Soft. Uh, the synopsis is after some, pretty, some petty theft grants three queer... Well, I don't know why that sentence was so hard. (laughs) Let me start over. After some petty theft grants three queer adolescents admission to a Toronto gay club, they are left to confront dark consequences. Joseph Amenta's debut film is a love letter to friendship and a testament to the queer community's perseverance. So as two queer people, you and I are like, this sounds good. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's called Soft. It is a drama. And uh, it is showing at International Village on Friday, September 30th, and Sunday, October 2nd. Mm. Have you seen Good Time by the Safdie brothers? I haven't, but my brother is obsessed with that movie. (laughs) And I saw a clip of Pete Davidson on Jimmy Fallon, literally, like, just talking about that film for, like, nine minutes. So I feel like I've seen it. (laughs) Okay, that's another film that it's incited by uh, petty theft going wrong. Oh, (laughs) okay. I'm excited for this new one <laughs> so yeah if i'm sure for those film buffs out there who have seen good time uh if you liked it you should go see gay good time <laughs> <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me <laughs> no no but it's much more than that we don't want to yeah. boil it down but right. but if you like those types of sort of heist coming of age movies mm-hmm. then soft showing at international village on friday september 30th and sunday october 2nd is for you um, all right, another one is The Metal Goes On Forever, colon, The Art and Times of David Hammonds. So this is a documentary, uh, and the synopsis is, The Melt Goes On Forever chronicles the elusive and provocative African-American artist David Hammond's body of work, which is firmly rooted in questioning the dominant culture and exposing racial injustices. So if you're someone who likes to question the dominant culture, which if you're listening to CITR, you probably are, (laughs) then go see The Melt Goes On Forever. Damn, that's a good title. Yeah, The Melt? The Melt Goes On Forever, colon, The Art and Times of David Hammond. Such like a poetic, like I feel like the image is like in my brain. I know, it's it's melting in my brain, (laughs) but it's like silvery melty. Mm. Anyways, that's, that's, what are you picturing? 
Yeah, or I don't know, like syrup or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anything that anything can melt. Anything can melt. That's the beautiful <laughs> nature of melting. Um, so you can see the melt goes on forever. Uh, Friday, September thirtieth, uh, at International Village, or Sunday, October second, also at International Village. Um, what else? There are a lot of really awesome documentaries playing. Um, oh, another film is Falcon Lake. So the synopsis is, when their families get together for a summer vacation, Bastine, a shy teenage boy who finds himself captivated by Chloe, a slightly older girl. But ha- but as they grow closer, lines of emotional and physical intimacy get blurred, and heartache ensues. Ooh. 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 <laughs> that one sounds visceral. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love a visceral film. <laughs> <laughs> exciting wow um so this one is playing at the rio theater on september 29th and uh saturday october 1st oh so vif is also at the rio yeah it's uh vif is at the center for performing arts international village vancouver playhouse the rio theater the cinematheque the vif center it's playing all over the city this is how you can tell i've never been to a film festival because i i thought it was just going to be like all at one like (laughs) oh no i've never been to a film festival either that's the beauty of it that's why i'm so excited yeah i'm just like reading this off my computer Mm mm-hmm um, okay, another film is called, oh, I'm really excited for this one. This one's called Framing Agnes. Uh, the synopsis is, exhuming transcripts from the 1950s study on transgender individuals, Chase Joint and his collaborators employ reenactments, reinvention, and personal reflections to examine the trans stories that are told and how and by whom they are autoured. Okay, I didn't really get that when I read it. Like, do you know what it's about? <laughs> no, wait, which one is it? <laughs> it's called Framing Agnes. Okay. So when I, re- when I, hopefully someone listening was like, I totally understand that. But when I read it to myself just now, I didn't get it. It's basically um, a documentary about trans records. Mm, like, I think. Like portrayals of um, trans stories or? The result is an all-too-rare film that is in constant dialogue with itself, both historical excavation and bold deconstruction. Framing Agnes exists in a liminal space, and in sparking essential discourse about these trailblazers, it aspires to lay the groundwork for further social change. Um, So yeah, I think that it's... Let me read this again. Exhuming transcripts from the 1950s study on transgender individuals, Chase, Joint, and his collaboratives... Collaborators employ reenactments, reinventions, and personal reflections to examine the trans stories that are told and how. Oh, okay. So I, I guess there was a 1950s study on transgender people, which I imagine was probably horrific and unethical. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Chase Joint and his collaborators do reenactments, reinventions, and they also reflect on uh, these studies. Hmm. And through this, they examine these the trans stories, how trans stories are told, who tells trans stories, and who auteurs them. So this actually sounds really interesting to me. Uh, when when I read this, I think of all of the trans, the, the movies about trans people that have been made by Hollywood that, that are starring people who are not trans, who yeah. are playing trans people. So I imagine that, you know, that that's something that they consider in this. Um, but... I'm really excited to see it. It's called Framing Agnes. You can see it Saturday, October 1st at SFU Woodward's Theater or Monday, October 3rd at the Rio Theater. Great. Lots of documentaries. Lots of documentaries. Ooh, okay. This one's called The Maiden. After losing his best friend, Kyle. Oh, I started that way too upbeat. <laughs> whoa, my voice was way too upbeat. Let me like bring it back down. That was like, whoa. Yeah. After losing his best friend Kyle in a tragic accident, Colton's life is turned upside down when he uncovers a missing girl's diary. A debut feature that's vis- visually arresting, revealing an achingly tender side of adolescence. Adolescence can be achingly tender. It really can. I, I've never known any other kind of <laughs> adolescence. <laughs> Me neither. Um, so you can see this is a drama film. And you can see it at International Village on October 1st or International Village on Monday, October 3rd. How much time do we have left? Oh, our time is up already. Oh, Vif, I'm so excited about you that I talked all the way until the very end of our show. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Nate, thanks so much for joining me. Um, Thanks for having me. I really hope that if you're up for it, interviewing some 
some people for Vith. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm very interested. (laughs) This is fun. I I love it. I know. I love it, too. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to today's show, especially the last 15 minutes were a tad chaotic. But um, I hope that if you're driving home, you're having a relaxing drive. It's a really nice evening you're looking at the sun i hope that you're about to go eat a delicious dinner maybe some like rice something that's what i'm mm, rice and beans rice and beans i hope we're that... in college yeah we're, <laughs> we're in college if you can't tell um so i hope everyone driving home right now is just dreaming of rice and beans because that's all we're allowed to dream of at this point right. <laughs> all right um bye bye <laughs>